Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go. Having worked with some of the best in the world, you kind of take some things and learnings away from that. And hopefully um, some of those learnings that I've taken and leading my organization, now I'm going to be able to you know, guide us through this and get us to the other side. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. If hosting this show has made one thing incredibly clear, it's that teamwork, data, and resources will be what help us thrive post-pandemic. Understanding that, Yelp and I have created a cheat sheet, offering insight into consumer behavior, popular trends and free tools and resources to help you get open and stay open. You can download that guide at joshcopel.com forward slash resources. Didn't write that down? There's a link in the show notes as well. Philip Camino is out to save his restaurants, but in the process may be able to help save the industry. Today we discuss how he's expanding the concept of team to include his vendors and how wellness plays a central role in his restaurant operations. So we're certainly looking at ways to mitigate risk as much as possible, you know, in terms of bottom line, you know, we're looking at ways to reduce costs. We're looking at ways to get more efficient, probably talking to our landlords and our stakeholders more than we've ever spoken to them. I mean, as you know, you know, you're probably talking to your landlord as am I probably more oh, yeah. the last two months than you've spoken to them in the last five years. Right. And just so oh, much more, so much more conversation is happening. And I love that. I think the idea of us conversating more and talking with not only um, external stakeholders like a landlord, um, but internal stakeholders like, you know, managers and staff and investors and, you know, e- even, even people like vendors, like those conversations are opening up now more than ever before. Um, And I think that's going to be healthy long-term because it starts to become a little bit more of a partnership when you go through these challenges versus an adversarial relationship, which I believe the tenant-landlord relationship has always been. It's always been very adversarial. It's always been you versus me, uh, zero-sum game, one wins, one loses. Um, And it hasn't hasn't been very collaborative um, historically. And I think now we're having to get creative because on both sides... You know, not I hear people say all the time, well, I'd hate to be in the restaurant business or I'd hate to be a, a retail tenant right now. I mean, on the flip side, it's not very fun <laughs> being a landlord right now. No, certainly I mean, not. You know, you own 500 buildings and three out of those 500 buildings you're not getting rent on. I mean, that's not a fun place to be when you've got bank covenants and you've got relationships with lenders and people who have supported you for 25 years to build that business. I mean, that cannot be a fun place to be when, when you cannot make those payments or you are you defaulting on mortgages, et cetera. So I think on both sides, it's, it's leading towards what I think in the end will be a good thing is collaborative conversation. And, you know, we're, we're certainly open to that. I think it's the only way forward. I think when you've got the, the environment that we're moving into, which is one of much less tenants much less restaurant tenants because of how many are likely going to fail, um, not only now, but in the next six to 12 months as the business kind of starts to open up again, hopefully. Um, I think you're going to see a substantial amount more failures occur. You know, we're going to go into this place where there's a lot less tenants and landlords are going to have a difficult time 
filling filling vacant spaces. And I think the spaces that do uh, get leased are going to be, again, it's going to be the sort of the top 1%. The most premium spaces will be in demand. But if you're a landlord that owns mid-level spaces or you're a restaurateur that's looking for mid-level spaces, there's going to be much less demand in that in that uh, arena, right? So I, I think there's going to be have to be a lot of conversation and a lot of collaboration across all aspects of this business going forward. And I think that's a positive thing. And I think our, our group is well set up for that because me, as you mentioned, I didn't uh, come up necessarily in hospitality. Um, I always had a little bit of a taste of it. Even going back to college, I was the director of finance and operations for my student union. So I got a little bit of a taste of it in college, kind of running the on-campus bar and the restaurants and all the hospitality on campus. Um, but I kind of moved away from it. I was in entertainment for a little while. I was at a, a big management company who managed you know, artists like Nora Jones and Diana Krall for, for years after college. And then I went on to the corporate marketing side for three or four years before I moved to Los Angeles. And um, when I came down here, I was given the opportunity to jump into some hospitality ventures. And I did. And as I said before, we kind of grew that business over time. And now we're sitting here in this position where I think I come to the table with a little bit of a different perspective, perhaps, than the average restaurateur, where I think if you've come up, you you may have a little bit more of a narrow lens in terms of what works and what doesn't. But having come from some other industries and been exposed to some other businesses and, and frankly, have been exposed to how at the very high levels of, you know, not only hospitality, but, you know, entertainment and marketing and corporate marketing and, and some corporate brands, having worked with some of the best in the world, you kind of take some things and learnings away from that. And hopefully some of those learnings that I've taken and leading my organization, now I'm going to be able to, you know, guide us through this and, and get us to the other side where I think, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, Josh, you know, I think there's some some very calm and serene waters waiting for the people that get there. I agree. But I, I want to unpack the idea of those outside philosophies that you, you yeah. infuse into your hospitality companies. Yeah, Can you sure. think of any off the top of your head, like like ideals that you brought from outside into that that have been successful for you? Well, I think one of the things that I learned early on was was, you know, when you're sort of exposed to artists who are world-class and you're, and, you know, then the second phase of my career was really working with brands who are, you know, world-class is, is like people are everything. It took me a little bit of time to really apply that to the hospitality business because as you know, a lot of the times it, it can be patchwork, right? You're sort of filling in where you can. And particularly in the last couple of years, it's been very difficult to find and retain talent. It's been very challenging to find the best people, the most world-class people. And if they are if they are in the market, they're employed already. They're gainfully employed and they're probably not going anywhere. So we've had a really hard time in our business in the last couple of years, as you know, even finding the most entry-level positions and no. filling those, right? Finding people like dishwashers and finding people... Um, like bussers who, you know, are absolutely essential. And, and some may argue, and I would agree to a, to an extent that they're some of the most important positions in a restaurant. I mean, you mm -hmm. don't have those people going. I mean, they can, they can destroy an entire weekend or an entire night if they're not there and if they're not good. Right. So, you know, we've had a hard time, like everyone, and I'm sure you can attest to this as well, just filling those roles. But one of the things like, to get back to your question is, Finding world-class people, when you do that, 
that breeds an environment of other world-class people wanting to join that team. It's kind of, it, I always, I always talk about the new England Patriots, you know, I'm talking to my guys here because it's like, once you have your, once you have that core group of guys, once you have Bill Belichick and you have Tom Brady and you've got, you know, pretty solid supporting cast, everyone wants to play for you. Right. right. You've got those few, those first few people who are really great. That's when people want to join your team. And I think that's the magic of it. Like even in the last six months at my place, when we've really started to focus on being world-class and doing it well. And, you know, as Thomas Keller says, cutting the tape, right. Instead of just ripping the tape off, you cut the tape and actually square it off and make it look right. And it's those little things that kind of like add up to a, a big result at the end. And when you surround yourself and you surround the organization with people who believe in those same ideals who come from those places i think that's when the magic really starts to happen and i think in hospitality that's really been overlooked in the last four or five years because like i said it's been very very saturated with restaurants and that's diluted the talent pool so much people have been coming in and filling roles and maybe playing positions that they weren't necessarily uh, trained for, or they weren't necessarily the best at, but they were playing roles that they were sort of forced into because of a necessity or a need. And I think that that is going to change dynamically over the next, like I said, six to 12 months, because there's going to be less restaurants. So now restaurateurs like myself and like you are going to have a little bit more of an opportunity to bring in top people because they'll be available now. And I think that's the beautiful end to this is almost a reset of the entire business where let's just say, for example, 35% of the restaurants don't reopen, right? And that's a conservative estimate. Some Mm -hmm. people are saying it's 80%. Some people are saying it's 90%. It really depends who you talk to and what research you're looking at. Some outlets are saying it's much higher than that, but let's just say 35%. And like, let's just examine that for a minute. If you have 35% of the restaurants not reopen in a marketplace like Los Angeles, that means a lot of things. The first thing that it means is you've got 35% less competition for someone who's still around, for someone like myself mm-hmm. or someone like you. So what does that do? Okay, well, it drives down competition, obviously. It increases, hopefully, sales at your restaurant if you do a good enough job. And hopefully, that restaurant dollar or the, or the universe of uh, dollars that the consumer is willing to spend in the market isn't decreasing at restaurants. It still will exist. So those the 65% of the restaurants that are left over hopefully still get 100% of that pie. So hopefully it means larger revenue pools for the restaurants that remain. Absolutely. Right? So, so so that's that's the first, I think, immediate impactful benefit of there being less competition. I think the second very impactful and beautiful part of what this looks like is I think the labor pool um, changes dynamically. I think we start to look at, okay, 35% less restaurants um, now 35% less places to work. The problems that we were having previously with transient employees, people not showing up, you know, no call, no shows, people not showing up to interviews. I think that landscape dramatically changes. I think that's going to be a thing of the past. Oh, it's a buyer's market. I agree with you. Absolutely. And that'll have a, that'll have a deflationary impact on wages. I believe, I think you're going to be able to get people at slightly less than what the market value was before COVID. And I'm not saying that we want to, you know, gouge people or underpay people. I think that the market forces will gradually drive those wages back up to where they were before. But at least in the in the near term, you're going to see some of the wages come down, especially for those sort of like um, less skilled entry level positions. I think we're going to get back to some, some semblance of normalcy on those entry level positions, which I think is necessary uh, for the economic model. 
and, and you're going to have more top talent available at the places that are remaining. And I think that's the key point is I'm, I'm recruiting right now. And quite frankly, I'm having conversations with people who have never been available to me for conversations right. about what I want them for. Um, I'm talking about two-star Michelin executive chefs. I'm talking about general managers who are running some of the biggest restaurants in Los Angeles from a gross revenue perspective and from mm -hmm. a notoriety perspective. I'm talking about even, even, even executive sous chefs, um, like second and third people in kitchens, like some of the best people in the country are available right now. And I think if you're a restaurateur who's really thinking about the long term and you're thinking about it beyond six months and you're thinking about what your business looks like in 24 months or 36 months or 60 months, five years from now, you're thinking about how do I treat this almost as the first round of a draft? How do I right. go and, and get as many of these first round picks as I possibly can, get them onto your team and and figure it out? Because I'm telling you, this 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 talent pool that's available right now is unprecedented. I look at that as a massive opportunity. And I think that's the, the, the one really, really beautiful part about what, where we're going. And then obviously the last two parts of, you know, that sort of economic equation of less restaurants in the marketplace is you're going to see a much more dynamic relationship between restaurants and suppliers. So, you know, Cisco, US foods, specialties, even farmers markets. When you have, when you're Cisco and you open up, your business and you start looking at the marketplace and you've got 35% less customers, you know, that changes your model dramatically. And I right. think those types of businesses are going to have to really change the way that they approach companies like ours. Um, I think they're going to have to be much more aggressive on terms. Uh, I think the service is going to have to get a lot better. I think the way that they uh, approach and the way that they handle key accounts is going to have to change dramatically. Um, I don't think that in the last five years, and I think, Josh, you can attest to this, is just the relationship between some of the, it, not necessarily the uh, the indies, but I think for the broadliners and some of the larger national companies, it was just a challenging way to work. I, I, didn't, no, I never was. enjoyed the relationship there. And I think that's going to change because their model is, is going to change dramatically. Well, and to tie two of your ideas together, because yeah. yeah. I, I think this is the perfect moment to do it. You know, you talk about the importance of team. Right, like team is number one. But then you also talk about relationships with vendors and landlords. And, and I think that the take home there is to, to widen your definition of team, right? To include your vendors, to include your yes, landlords. Absolutely. Uh, because the, the words that come to mind are mutual investment, right? Like I don't wanna work with anyone that's not willing to invest in me. And so when you're looking for landlords, when you're looking to re-engage your vendors, like they, they, there is a conversation to be had there, whether it's you're looking at a new space and you're turning to a landlord and saying, listen, I'm about to invest half a million dollars, three quarters of a million dollars into a building that I don't own. Mm -hmm. I don't want to pay rent until the day I open. I don't care when that is because mm -hmm. I need you to invest in me in the same way I'm investing in you. Or you Absolutely. turn to vendors and say, I don't want to work on your delivery schedule. These are the mm -hmm. days I need the product. This is the product I need. You're going to need yep. to figure out how to get it. And I want net 30, net 45, net 60 terms. You know? Exactly. Exactly. A hundred percent. I mean, you're talking about going into some of these broadliners, you know, in the last few years and, and you know, even with 
a ton of cash in the bank and being well capitalized and great credit, you know, you're looking at net seven terms. It's like, it's crazy. These, yeah, terms should be net 30 to net 45, like you said. And I think just the personal relationship, the personal attention that each restaurant gets is going to increase. And I think that's going to make, look, all these things all end up being product centric, right? If you have better people, better product, the business is better capitalized because of the terms that it's getting and because of the way that it's being allowed to operate with higher grosses, less competition. So the, the grosses end up being higher. At the end of the day, what does that mean? It means that the consumer experience is going to be substantially better than it was in the last three to five years. Because all of those factors, whether it's better talent, better product, the restaurant being under less financial strain, the restaurant being able to rely on its employees more, being a little less stressed because of the, the less competition that exists in the market, the, the consumer is going to feel that at the table, right? right. The service is going to be better. The product is going to be better. The food is going to be better. The environment's going to be better. The chair won't be broken. The dish won't be chipped. All of these things are going to turn into this, I think, a renaissance for restaurants in the next couple of years. And I'm probably, I mean, I've talked to everybody. I've talked to, you know, my mm -hmm. entire circle and beyond, you know, been on podcasts. I've been talking to everyone. I think you and I are are two of the most positive people that I've you know encountered <laughs> <laughs> in this. And there's not many people that think there's a, a great end to this, but when when you really move away from looking at it in a short term lens, and I always try to do, I try to look at this thing from a thousand feet all the time because that's my job. My job is to be the CEO and to look at these things pragmatically and look at things as moving parts and how we get from point A to point B as a whole. When you, when you zoom out a little bit and you get away from the, the, the fact that, yes, today hurts a little bit because we're not open and where we are open, we've got you know 30% capacities on the sidewalk and it's not great, right? It's not. I agree. I'm the, I'm the first person to say it's not a great environment. But when you get past that and you go, look, it hurts today, but what are we looking at 12 months from now? I, don't, I truly believe that it's a renaissance because you're going to have all this talent concentrated in these in a much smaller number of locations. And let's talk about that talent yeah. for a minute because I, yeah. I think that I think that if we were able to take off like our owner operator hat and put on the employee hat, I think you see a lot of people out there right now uh, mm -hmm. that are looking at the 5, 10, 15, 20 year investment they've made in this industry. And they say, right. I only had... 30 days worth of cash in my pocket. I have no health insurance. I have no 401k. Like I'm getting out. Like I'm just not, I'm not going to deal with this industry anymore. The quick, easy money wasn't that quick. It wasn't that easy. And now I find myself out of luck as an employee and then looking at it as an owner. Do you say, do we need to offer more? I think we do, right? There does need to be subsidized health care. There does 100%. need to be retirement, right? There do need to oh, be absolutely. Uh, retirement programs for, for these people. Absolutely. And then who pays for that and how do they pay for that, Bill? Right. Incredible point. Well taken. I agree substantially and wholeheartedly. I think that you have to take care of the people that are in your building. I mean, we've, we got into a position even in the last couple of years where it became business centric and not employee centric because of the factors that I mentioned before, because we were becoming almost unreliant on um, certain positions. We were getting a lot of turnover for no real reason. 
Um, we were seeing people leave. We were seeing people come and we didn't know necessarily who was going to be here one week and who was going to be here the next week. And I think that's a tough place to be as an owner because that relationship of, well, the idea is that, you know, you, you show up and you do a great job. We pay you and we take care of you. The part of showing up and doing a great job wasn't happening, right? The first part of that relationship wasn't necessarily happening. And so it's hard to follow through on the second part when the first one's not happening. So we had a lot of internal conversations about that. And we actually implemented, you know, 4% surcharges on, on bills. We started going, look, this problem is existing because employees don't feel like they are, like you said, kind of getting a 360 compensation experience. Right? right, they're not getting the healthcare. They're not being competitive with other industries. They're seeing friends of theirs go into finance, or friends of theirs go into uh, medical device sales, or friends of theirs going into auto sales, even having better packages than they do as even a top server in this yeah, business. Yeah. So, how do you kind of how do you how do you do a better job there? One of the things that we're doing at at my place, which I think is going to lead into a lot of other really interesting places is we're actually getting, we're starting with the executive team. And I've already started it with, you know, sort of my top six or seven people is we've started doing, well, two things. Number one, we're doing compensation financially based on performance, but we're really dialing down into personal metrics, things like Mm -hmm. things that you can really impact on a day, on a day-to-day basis. So for an executive chef, for example, some of those metrics would be like prime costs. Instead of saying, hey, we're going to only look at labor or we're only going to look at you know one metric or your food costs, we're actually going to comp you and give you a substantial bonus program based on you hitting certain very reachable metrics. We need you to reach certain metrics on prime costs. And that's something where that's a conversation that can be very fluid and ongoing. And I know as an owner that there's a certain amount of guardrail on the business. If you look at the economics of a restaurant, for example, let's say in a, in a $3 million restaurant, Let's say your 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 cost of goods, or let's just use an easy number, but say thirty percent. It's about a million bucks, and your labor's you know going to be somewhere around there too. Let's say your prime costs are about two thirds of your uh, two thirds of your gross revenue. Yeah, you're handing the reins to a couple of people in your building who are responsible for about two million dollars a year worth of spending, yeah. and that's a substantial amount of spending. That's like you know you go to a you go to a big corporation, or you go to you go to an ad company or a brand, I mean, a $2 million spend responsible for one person is a considerable spend anywhere. Right. And I don't think we've ever looked at it that way where we go, man, this person is responsible for a lot. So how do we make it so that he knows week to week, day to day, month to month, exactly where he sits or she sits when making these important at the end of the day, most important decisions that the business will have over the course of the year. Like you're talking about you know, one point on prime costs, I mean, that equates to $100,000. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so you, you've got to, what we should be doing is going, not how, not how do I pay you $5,000 a year more on an annual basis? How do we collectively partner up and create the best way to shave a couple of points off prime costs, which is a few hundred thousand dollars of savings, and then have you participate in that savings with us? Right. So when I save 200 grand, you participate in that with me because at the end of the day, it doesn't cost me anything further to do that. Right. I don't have to reach into my pocket to pay you that. That's just money that's going to be there. It's profit sharing. Exactly. But it's not profit sharing where you then have to go to your investors and say, 
Hey guys, we're, you know, we're, we're carving out another, you know, three to 4% of our net profit at the end of the year. This is cost savings that they will see on the bottom line right? and they'll be happy with, but it kind of gets carved out before it reaches the bottom line. And then everybody's happy. The executive chef's happy because he gets a part of that savings that he helped create. And then the investors are ecstatic because you're running prime costs at 58 instead of 60. And that equates to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at the end of the year. So, you know, we're, we're trying to be as creative as possible looking at it that way. And then the second thing that we've really been focusing on is just health and wellness and mm-hmm. really starting to have conversations with the, the not only you know, line level employees, but executives at, at, the, at the beginning is where we're starting. And it's, it's starting with putting, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. And I don't think many people are doing, but we're, we're putting uh, biometric trackers on, um, on our executive team. And everyone's opted mm-hmm. in for it, obviously. But we're partnering with a company called Whoop. And Whoop is, uh, they just partnered with the PGA Tour. They just partnered with the NFL. They're kind of the leader in, uh, in biometric tracking. And they, their technology is actually the first biometric tracker that's been able to uh, determine or predict whether or not you have COVID or not. Oh, I've got one um, on my wrist right now, man. Yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Me too. I wear it every day. I live by it. You know, if, if you have your whoop and you wait, I mean, we've all heard the stories, but if you wake up and your respiratory rate's inflated by, you know, call it three or 4% over its normal range, um, that's a pretty perfect indicator of whether or not you may have COVID. And mm-hmm. you've seen professional athletes over the last couple of months that have been on tour, for example, like on a golf course, seeing their respiratory rate spike on their app, gone and got tested and then got off the course and quite, quite literally have, you know, saved exposure to hundreds of other athletes and staff and caddies and everyone else. So we think not only in the COVID era, is that something really valuable where it's like, Hey, if your respiratory rate spikes, don't come in, go get tested immediately right. and, you know, be sensible about it. But the second part of that is, we're actually going to look at another metric on Whoop, which is recovery. And there's a recovery metric, which is essentially indicative of how much you've been able to recover from the strain that you've put on your body the previous day. And that's through a number of methodologies, whether that's water uh, consumption, hydration, sleep, meditation, all the things that you do to sort of recover your body from the strain that you put on. And that strain can be emotional stress. It could be workouts. It could be um, you know, having a long conference call, it could be, you know, going on a long bike ride, whatever that happens to be in your day, Mm -hmm. that's the strain that your body takes on. And then how you recover from it or how well you recover from it is how well your body has essentially, you know, rejuvenated itself over the course of a night. So you get a recovery score each day. What whoop does corporately. And I just, I I was just on a long call with those guys, what they do corporately. And what we're going to start instituting here is they pay employees, if you average an 85% recovery, which means that your body 85% of the time is recovered from the strain that you put on from the things that you do outside of the office, like sleep properly each night or hydrate yourself or take the supplements that you should be taking, they actually financially compensate their employees for how much recovery they get. So if you average 85 at Whoop, you get $100 at the end of the month, which is amazing. So we're going to start doing that too. So it's like this, yes, financially, we want everyone to, to make what they make. And we want everyone to go home with a great paycheck at the end of the day. But not only for us, because look, if I've got people who are across the board, 85% recovered each and every day when they're in the building, that's only going to be good for me, right? right. <laughs> that's going to be good for the business. That's going to be good for their performance. That's going to be good for how well they manage the prime costs. It's going to be good for how well they perform under pressure when they're under the gun on Friday night and there's you know 300 covers in the building how well they're going to respond to that. 
Mm-hmm. All of these things are going to come into a really nice package. And at the end of the day, it's going to mean that, again, they're going to feel better. They're going to do a better job, which in, in, at the end will make the product for the customer better. And then even further downstream, they're going to end up making more money because they're going to do a better job on all these things that we've kind of tasked them with in, in their job, prime costs. And then hopefully if they're doing a really good job with their recovery, they get a little check at the end of the month too. So, you know, we're trying to be kind of 360 with it and as progressive as possible. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but we're starting like a little test with our, uh, I've got, you know, I've got probably nine, maybe 10 people now, including myself on Whoops. And uh, we're on a team and we sort of challenge each other. And the cool thing about Whoop, and not to make this all about recovery or, you know, (laughs) biometrics, but the cool thing about it is it's all opt-in. So the employee can share or not share as much info as they want. And there's, it's really limited. What I see is really limited data. So I don't see, for example, like what time they went to bed or what time they woke up. All I see right. is their recovery score, right? Or mm-hmm. the amount of sleep that they got. I don't see the actual ins and outs of their life or their metrics. So it's really just kind of a, a very broad stroke around how well they're doing. And I think you, you can attest this. You've been in the business a long time as have I. I don't think that this aspect of an employee's being, employee's life has ever really been valued by the employer. I think there's always been the the drive, 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 go, 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 you know, you know, work a double, then double up and do another one the next day. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, hours and get back in in the morning. Like it's never been valued. And I think we got to change that paradigm. I agree. I I think a holistic view uh, of your, your employees and the whole hospitality ecosystem is incredibly valuable. I mean, I came up in this industry when having two days off in a row was a reward. That was something right. that you worked up to, you know? Right, right. And that's that's what I think when you start talking about people getting burnt out, not feeling compensated, not feeling like they're getting the recognition that they deserve. Like, I think a big part of that is, is quite frankly, is just not feeling great at the end of the day. Yeah. Like, if, if you're recovering and you're doing these things and your health is good, and you start to really, you know, understand all these things about yourself that you didn't know before, and we're the ones providing that to you. You know, I think that there's such a such a, an amazing conversation to be had there because I think you can also then predict so not only COVID, and I think in the in the near term while we're dealing with this virus, having this technology available to us to sort of predict if people are going to be sick, that's not only a great internal thing for us to have, so that we we aren't exposing anyone and you're already seeing lawsuits coming out you're already seeing you know employees suing employers about you know this issue so we want to know that well up in, in front so we want to be in front of that we want to make sure we, we get ahead of it um and we're beating that you know before it even gets started the second the second part is that's a really great thing for our customers right yeah. to know that we care enough about everyone in our building's well-being not only the customers that we care about, we want the customer to walk into an environment that is very safe. And if we're in front of it and we're not allowing anyone in our building to walk into work when the respiratory rate's higher, which mm-hmm. quite possibly means they have COVID, I mean, that's kind of step one, right? In, in beating this thing. You know, we, we love that. And I think just this whole, whole holistic aspect of financial is one aspect to it for sure. I think rest and recovery and people feeling healthier is another piece. And then, you know, down downstream, we're just going to get further into how we, you know, make sure people know about hydration, how well they know about, you know, supplementation and, you know, all of these things. We have healthcare plan for everyone. We're doing 4% surcharges to pay for that. So we're trying, we're doing our best. I think we're, we're as progressive as it gets on that front. So I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to be progressive with it. And I care about that stuff deeply because I believe that, you know, if you don't show up your best every day, how are you, how are you going to be world-class, right? You just can't do it unless you're, 
unless you've slept well, unless you drank enough water, unless you've eaten properly, it just, it, it, it won't happen. So that's what we're doing, man. We're trying to be as progressive as possible, trying to take care of everyone that's in our building. And, and like I said, I think that there is a, an oasis beyond COVID for the restaurant business. I think there's going to be a renaissance in the next couple of years for all these factors that we've gone through. And I'm personally very excited for it. I think in the short term, like we said, it's going to be tough sledding. Like no doubt the next six, 12 months are going to be difficult, but I think for the ones who figure it out and get through it, I can't wait to see everyone there because I think there's going to be like some good years ahead of us beyond this. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guest an opportunity to offer any advice or words of encouragement directly to the industry people listening. Uh, Do you have any words you'd like to share? I think the biggest thing that I'd like to say to people that are listening is I'm with you. I know how difficult this stage has been when your business isn't open. You you don't feel complete. You don't feel whole. You don't feel like you're doing anything. Take this time to when you're not running around crazy with your hair on fire to evaluate a few things in your own life, in your own business. Take time to look at the things that we've implemented in the last couple of months, things like employee wellness, things like how you're organized, the bodies that you have in. Take a real hard look at all those aspects in your business. And when this all comes back, and it will, no doubt it will, you're going to be ready for it. And I think you have to take some time right now when you're probably never going to have this much time on your hands again to, to really kind of look at all the, all the aspects of what you're doing and sit down and be pragmatic with it. Sit down with your accountants, sit down with your strategists, sit down with your coaches, sit down with your team and, and look at all of this stuff really through a lens of like, what's on the other side of this? And, and B, if you can't see what's on the other side of it, build a plan for yourself to get you there. Um, we've looked at every which way and, and every way we look at it, we think that there is a very, very great opportunity for this business on the other side. And for that reason, I'm just very optimistic and I'm happy that I'm in this business. I don't think many people would admit to that, but I guess my my theme of the day, and just to say to everyone out there who's listening, is just be optimistic. The short term is difficult, but I think the long term is wonderful and beautiful and you just have to get there. That's Philip Camino. To learn more about Philip's concepts, go to CaminoIndustries.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.